What's up, good people? Today's conversation topic comes to us from Francesca, a listener from Nashville, Tennessee. Francesca writes, can you please talk about gender roles in the church and why they need to be laid down by the riverside? Oh, yes. And the answer is, yes, we can. So I grew up in a religious community where the pastor would regularly preach sermons that I now understand were rooted in patriarchy. If by chance patriarchy is a new word for you, or if you've heard it a lot but never taken the time to look it up, the simplest way to describe patriarchy is the belief that men are superior to women. Patriarchy not only assumes the superiority of men, it assumes their rightful domination of women and children, and it places men at the center of society and grants a disproportionate share of power just because they have penises. And by they, I mean we, because I also am a cisgender male embodied man. And if cisgender is a new word for you, stay tuned for another podcast episode and we will talk about that then. Like many religious communities, my childhood congregation was deeply committed to patriarchy and utilized its sacred text, in our case, the Bible, to both justify and bolster its bigotry. While I have since read myself out of that religious community and learn to read and value scripture in more nuanced ways, that religious community and so many others around the country still espouse a belief system that perpetuates the subjugation of women. Yes, it is still happening in 2021, the year of our Lord. And Francesca, I'm with you. It's gotta go down by the riverside. Lay it on down. So, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have questions you'd like to discuss or reflections on today's episode, please send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Now, let's get into it. So, y'all, what messages did you grow up hearing about women? Particularly, what did you learn in your religious community about women and their role or place in the church and the world? Women were always welcome in leadership roles when I was growing up. My my grandmother was a deacon. My grandmother was an elder. So like, where did you grow up where women were always affirmed in ministry? Like geographically, denominationally? So my dad was in the army, so I lived in a ton of places. Mom went to seminary. She started seminary part-time when we lived in Kentucky, and she finished seminary when we lived in Texas. So geographically, it's not as significant, except we are never in the Southeast. I mean, so Katie, what year were you born? 1970. Okay. And your mother was born when? (laughs) She was born in 1946. I mean, she was ordained in 1986. It had been maybe 30 years since the Presbyterian Church had started ordaining women. I was going to say, because it didn't happen until October the 24th of 1956 when the Reverend Margaret Towner was ordained as the first woman minister in the PCUSA, right? Well, the, the PCUSA as a denomination didn't come about until 1983. But Margaret Towner was indeed the first woman to be ordained in the Northern Presbyterian Church. The first woman to be ordained in the Southern Presbyterian Church was Rachel Henderlight, and that didn't happen until December 12th, 1965. So my mom was at least able to be ordained in 1986, but she was ordained as an assistant pastor. That designation doesn't exist anymore in the Presbyterian Church, but I understand that the assistant pastor was the way into leadership for many women, as it was highly unlikely they were going to be ordained as a pastor anywhere. Did the category of assistant pastor exist prior to them accepting women in ministry? Mm, That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question. See, that's why I'm asking the question, because I'm like, it's easy to be like, my mother was in ministry. I was ordained in ministry. All these other things, all these women. I came up at a time when women were affirmed in ministry. But I think that part of the struggle for sort of gender roles in the church and how women are represented in ministry is even when we do quote unquote, affirm women in ministry, there are these new structures that create a sort of second class citizenship. And that happens with black people. It happens with LGBTQ folks. It happens with black trans folks. It happens every time that we claim we're trying to include someone. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. I believe that the structures still exist today. But if we're talking about, have you seen women in leadership in the church? I have always grown up seeing women in leadership in the church. And so there were always more women in the church than men. Those were the people who were running the church. But in my church, they were also on the governing boards. And so that's the difference. That doesn't mean that the patriarchy doesn't exist. But I, I say that 
as significant because even today, women come to seminary and they've never heard a woman preach before. And that's still astonishing to me. And perhaps it is because I didn't grow up or attend church in the South or anything like that. But the reality is if we're just looking at who's doing what in the church, women were always involved. Sam, what about you? I'm from the rural South. Did I say, did I pronounce both of my R's? I mean, you are from the rural South, so maybe not. I'm from the rural South, small town, Alabama, grew up in a missionary Baptist church. So my childhood is really comprised of two church experiences. From the time that I was a small child up until maybe about 11 or 12, I attended like my family church where all of my family went, uh, where most of my family uh, back home still attends. I can't recall any time where I saw a woman as a deacon or preaching in the church. Between zero and 12 years old, that never registered with me. It was only when I changed churches because um, this new church was on fire, man. They were- So you was a church hopper as well? I I was No, it was just those two. Just those two. Okay. And the the first church was so dead. I don't know if y'all have ever been to like one of these rural churches where they just like lean over the, the deacons just lean over the table and just say, oh Lord have mercy. It was like one of those. And it was just horrible. And I was like, nope. And then this other church was just on fire. It was alive. And I was like, I'm going here. And it was there that I began to hear the scripture being interpreted in ways that were really oppressive. Are you uncertain about the oppression? No, no. That sounded interrogative. I think at the time, because I put so much trust in the male leadership in the church of that time, in that era, I assumed what was being espoused and taught was right. Hmm. I assumed that it was gospel, that it was the correct interpretation of scripture. And so when the preacher would read scriptures like 1 Timothy 2 and 12, that says, I would not suffer you to allow women to be in positions of leadership or have authority over men. And they would interpret these scriptures to mean that, no, women can't be here in the pulpit. Women can't be deacons because those positions are authoritative positions that make decisions and a woman can't be in a position over a man or making decisions over a man. And I think as a 13 year old, I was like, oh, I never read that before. I didn't know that was there. Wow. And I took it as gospel. And I went to college defending some of these positions. And it was in college that I had this like awakening. It was interesting the way men in these traditions in the rural South in the Black Missionary Baptist churches would use these texts, would use these scriptures to maintain their positions of power and to at the same time denigrate and keep women at the bottom in churches, even though women comprised most of the population in churches. They were the glue that held it together. They were the oil that made it run. Like they were the reason church existed. Yeah. I mean, I think I heard the same exact messages as you, Sam. And it wasn't in rural Alabama. It was in like the city. But I still did hear these same exact messages. I would say at least 15 to 20 times a year, there will be some sort of reference to women being second-class citizens. And it wasn't always the topic of the sermon, but it was like the subtle ways in which it was always insinuated and implied. Like if we were anywhere near Colossians, we could be like at the beginning, like in the first chapter, but we was going to make it to the third chapter in the 18th verse where Paul writes, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, right? Husbands love your wives, but we never read the second part. It was only verse 18 talking about wives be submissive, be subject to your husbands. If we were anywhere in first Corinthians, which is a much larger text than Colossians, we would always make it to the 14th chapter and talk about how women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject themselves, just as the law also says, right? If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Ask your own husband. Don't ask somebody else's husband. Don't ask nobody else's husband, right? And I mean, so I think like we heard those messages with such regularity that it was ingrained in me. And that's something that I would have defended. And there was, I mean, and I had all of the logic for it. And the way that we would read scripture in that particular religious community, 
was laced with patriarchy. We would talk about how, I mean, and I don't believe any of this shit anymore, but the whole reason we're in this human predicament right now is because of Eve. That woman you gave me, Lord. It all began with Eve. God gave the command to Adam. God didn't give no command to Eve because Eve was supposed to be subject to Adam. And it was Adam's responsibility to make sure that Eve didn't eat of the tree. Mm. They would preach it just like that. Just like this. Like, it's horrible. And at least 50 to 60% of the people in the church were women. That's how you keep them down. But they were amen and two. That's the point. <laughs> like, looking back, it's hard to imagine how someone who is embodied as a woman could sit in a congregation and amen that and stay under that sort of pastoral leadership that truly considers them to be second-class citizens at best, but I think that it considers them to be shit. Like, it, it, it really downgrades and denigrates women in those religious communities. And the sad thing is, that particular congregation still has pastoral leadership that espouses the exact same thing. Because I still go and look at the little live streams. I've mostly fast-forward through them. But just last Sunday, they had an old message that they played where in the pastor was engaged in a rant. It was just a complete and total rant. There was no text, but somehow the place of women in the church still made it into the sermon. This is amazing to me because that's a very big church. It is a large congregation. So the most egregious sermon that I heard, I, I, I went to seminary in 2013. And so this had to be around that time. I went to my stepdad's church. This was a revival. So it was night. You know, in the country, we love revivals. We, we ain't, ain't no church like going to church at night oh, yes. during a revival. And this man got up there and preached, and his whole sermon was about how God will not use women. And he says, you know, you might be saying that God can use any anybody because God used a rooster and because God used a donkey. And he said, but they were male factors. God didn't use a hen. God didn't use a mare. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I was so aghast. I don't have a poker face. So when I tell you I was sitting in that church staring at him like if looks could kill, like you you low down. And, and I think the only reason I didn't get up and walk out is because my mom had asked me to be at church and I love my mom. He pointed at his wife. He said, that's my wife right there on the front row. He said, the day that she tells me she's called to preach, we're going to the courthouse to get a divorce because that's just not in God's plan. I mean, this whole sermon was so egregious and so horrible. This is why I think all women should be lesbians. Like, men are shit. That's true. But this does point back to when I'm telling you about how I grew up with women in leadership roles, and you're like, well, there's there's deeper, deeper patriarchy, which is absolutely true. But you guys are telling exactly why. Those simple representation of having women in the pulpits, on the session, laying hands on folks who are being ordained is significant. My mom was so radical that back then that she would not even call God, God. She called God, they, like theos is God in Greek, but she would just call it they. Oh, I thought you meant like they, them, their pronouns. I was like, okay, <laughs> she was on them pronouns for anybody back in the 50s and the nah, 60s. She, this was in the 80s, uh, the 70s and the 80s, but. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> Still in grade school. Um, <laughs> Your mama was in third grade talking about, God's pronouns are they, them, them. Come on, Janet, in third yeah, grade. That is interesting though. But I mean, but that's where she was. I'm going to talk to her about that at dinner tonight. Like, I grew up with this very radical theology. I mean, in high school, I had a poster that said, when God created man, she was only joking. And and that was... That's blasphemous. God is not a she. No, I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's what I grew up with. And, and so anything that disagreed with that was, of course, wrong, which I still agree with, except I think that God transcends gender. But the reality is that representation, that's all we had. That's all we still have. But that's still more important than the 20-some sermons you have every year to tell the people who are running the church that they don't belong in leadership when they're the ones putting everything together. Right. It's like it's slave master religion, you mm -hmm. know, the same way that the slave master would interpret the scripture to keep the slaves in bondage, to make yes. sure that they didn't desire or want freedom. It's the exact same thing in, in men in these religious traditions. They should be burned at the stake. I mean, it's just... This is horrible. Brandon, let's get some gas and some matches and burn down these patriarchal churches. You got to burn down all of them, though. That's the thing. Burn you have to burn down, down the whole institution. <laughs> and we're not going down that road again. So I think for the three of us who've been to seminary and for the three of us who've been pastoral leaders and worked in ministry, I think a lot of this conversation about gender roles and women in ministry is focused on the pulpit. But there's a large group of women who aren't called to ministry. I would say the majority of women, well, I actually can't say that because we've probably been telling them for the last 
hundred years that they can't be called to ministry. So who fucking knows? Hundred? Just the last hundred years? Did you see Paul's letters? Since the beginning of time. <laughs> we've been telling them they don't belong in leadership roles since the beginning of time. So there's probably actually more women who are gifted for ministry who aren't imagining that as a possibility. But I think what I'm trying to wrestle with here is what about the women who aren't called to ministry? Like they still hear these sort of messages and that creates... I think a certain mindset for how they live in the world. If people in Christian churches, if people who still worship in those communities, belong to those communities, tithe in those communities, are hearing the messages in the church, how does that impact a woman who becomes the chief of medicine at a hospital? How does that impact a woman who becomes the president of an educational institution? How does that impact the woman who might be cleaning the toilet? How does it impact the woman who's your checkout clerk at the local grocery store? At the end of the day, it's not even an issue that can be confined to the church. And I don't think that it started in the church, but the church did pick that thing up just like it picked up slavery and sanctified it. And that has implications for the social order of the world. I would add on to your question that how does it affect men in those situations too? Because if you've got a chief of the hospital that's a woman, you still have all these men who think that they actually are the ones who are in charge. Oh, absolutely. So continuously, women who are in leadership roles are dismissed or argued against. I mean, we say this with Black people and queer people all the time. Women in leadership roles outside the church are paid less. They're disrespected. Their ideas are not valued. We have sanctified it inside and outside of the church. I think that's that's the point. This is why I guess people call me sacrilegious or a heretic, but I want to look at the facts on the ground and see what those facts say. And the facts suggest that what we worship is patriarchy. Yes. The facts suggest is what we worship is racism because we've institutionalized those things. And with or without scripture, we've created a system and a structure that we do worship. We are reliant on it. If your whole life is organized around the fact that you need your wife in a heterosexual part, partnership to be submissive to you, you are worshiping patriarchy, not God. You are not following scripture. You're not being faithful. If that's what you're doing, you're following your penis. That's what you're worshiping. If you are as big of a homophobe as you say, I am telling you now that you are worshiping penis. You are bowing at its altar. You are on your knees before it and you have your mouth open and you're saying insert here. That's what you're doing. When you aren't actually worshiping Jesus or whatever deity you claim you worship, your life is full of a lot of contradictions because what you're doing is actually worshiping patriarchy. And that's only about your penis. <laughs> you, have, you have painted a picture for us today. <laughs> you have said it eloquently. It's not the word that I, I want to use, but graphically maybe the word that I want to use. It's this same sanctification of patriarchy that we have created in the world that also perpetuates rape culture, perpetuates sexual abuse and sexual harassment, that those things are valid to do because this is just a woman. And so... And she deserved it, right? Correct. If she gets raped, she was dressed in a certain way. Correct. So not only do we believe that in those our churches, not only do we believe that within our communities, but our entire justice system is set up to perpetuate that. We don't hold men accountable for rape and sexual abuse and sexual assault. And it's so subtle in how we teach it to women. I'm thinking about sermons that I heard in the church, right? So Correct. And how shame is used to perpetuate this as well. Like anytime a woman came in the church that was dressed in a way that might be called risque, I didn't think it was risque at all, but I'm also not heterosexual, so it maybe aroused me in the way that it aroused them. You were, you were pretending to be at the time. I was, but I wasn't really looking at women. I just had a girlfriend all the time. Like, okay. But the way that the preacher from the pulpit would shame women for how they were attacked. And they would talk about how if you're dressing in a certain manner, that's going to cause your male siblings to stumble. Mm -hmm. It's going to cause men in the church to stumble. So men aren't accountable for their own emotions. Men aren't accountable for their own desire. Men aren't accountable for their penises. You have to be responsible for that as a woman. And I'm sitting there like, now that I'm in the fullness of who I am and I've been there for a while and I just don't care. I'm sitting there like, do you know how many of y'all sit up in the pulpit with tight pants? And not all of you have large penises, but those of you who do seem to wear the tightest pants. And you sit there with your legs wide open and you don't have a lap cloth over it. And I see that. And that might be causing me to stumble. And some of y'all are actually motioning your crotches in a suggestive manner when you see me walk in the door because y'all know who I am, but you're not sure of who you are. But that's a whole other story for a whole other day. I'm just trying to highlight that there's this double standard that men who are invested in worshiping patriarchy hold everyone else to, and it's not faithful. I think oftentimes we don't want to address the problem with Scripture itself, so we address the problem with the way that we interpret Scripture. Mm. But there's a there's a truth and a reality in patriarchy being baked into the text itself. 
And there are some challenges. Some people do hurdles and, and they contort and twist themselves out of shape to try to make scripture okay. And there is some stuff that I'm not I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say Paul shouldn't have wrote this shit. Right. Uh, <laughs> this is just wrong. There's this view of the Bible that suggests that what we have is the holy word of God. It is holy. It is good. It is righteous. It is complete. It tells the whole story of humanity. We need to read this and value it as holy. I mean, every Bible that I've ever had has the word holy in front of the word Bible. And that doesn't actually take seriously the fact that the Bible was a process. Like when I was taught that the Bible was holy, they use words like scripture is inerrant. There isn't an error in scripture. It never contradicts itself. We talked about it being basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. We did those things. And the reality is scripture was a process and came to into existence over time. Katie is like, what? You never heard that? I have never heard that. <laughs> I'm writing it down. That's what it is. It's Bible. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Katie, you, you, you were spared so many like atrocities inside of your childhood. Like that's literally what people said. Basic instructions before, before leaving, leaving Earth. Before leaving Earth. Fascinating. You had people who actually believe that, that the Bible were instructions. They were prescriptive, not descriptive. I have to follow this. It's literally what God wants me to do and how God wants me to do it. And that negates the reality that people didn't sit there and just like write the Bible in one sitting. When I heard the scripture was the word of God and was divinely inspired, I literally pictured men, only men, sitting in some sort of cave. They were locked in there and they sat there and the Holy Spirit like breathed into their brains. Like and it was like a fog that entered the room and their eyes rolled in the back of their head. And they all just started writing down with their little like tablets and chisels. Like that's what I pictured because that's what it meant for scripture to be the word of God. And no one taught me about the fact that there were these councils that said these books are what we're going to count as scripture. Yep. And there are these other books that we're not going to include in the story. Like at the end of the day, can scripture be the word of God, divine, inspired, and also have errors and also have problems? Yes, but that's a contradiction and that's a tension that no one wants to live in because if it's not the instruction manual, the user manual, if it's not the constitution around which I should govern my life, then what need do I have for it? Maybe the most faithful thing you can do with scripture is to challenge it and critique it. And sometimes if you're reading it and you see Paul say, wives be submissive, you can say Paul was stupid. Paul was stupid. Paul was dumb. Paul was short-sighted. Paul was a product of his time. Paul was not imaginative. Yep. Paul was a patriarch. All of that. That's why I take it a little further than the councils who came together to decide what's in the Bible. There's places actually in scripture, uh, namely 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, this is me talking. This isn't even from God. It's 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says to the married people, I give you this command, not I, but the Lord. That's the first one. He says, you know, wives and husbands shouldn't separate X, Y, and Z. And then in verse 12, Paul says to the rest of you, I say this, this is me. This is not the Lord. Hmm. Paul is acknowledging right here in scripture. I, yeah, this, this first part, this is coming directly from God. And I still question if it, if it was. This <laughs> second part, <laughs> this second part, this ain't the Lord. This is me telling you. This is me layering my own assumptions, my own beliefs. And so Paul is saying that if any brother has a wife who's not a believer, basically you can't separate from your wife. Y'all must stay together. That text for me, begin to problematize the way that we view scripture as being dropped down from heaven, from God. And I'm like, if Paul can admit to you right here that in our holy text, this is not from God, this is directly from Paul, how much of it that's not acknowledged is also coming from the people who are delivering us the word. Nobody wants to sit there and say, Paul is admitting that he's putting himself in the story. He's placing himself in the narrative. To me, what that does is it kind of makes scripture more accessible because now if Paul is able and willing to enter the story and to write in this way and to locate himself, that should empower and embolden me to do the same. But when we have individuals who sit there and they say, what I'm saying is coming directly from God. I'm coming from this tradition of speaking for, speaking with, speaking beside, speaking within God. And then I'm willing to say, well, this is Brandon, but this is Brandon being faithful to God to the extent that that's possible to do. Then automatically there's a value assigned to what the other person is saying 
because what they're saying is inspired and what I'm saying can't possibly be because I'm locating myself. And I think the last thing I want to say in this section, when I started to read the Bible more critically and not accept as fact those things that were given to me by patriarchal men in the tradition, I started seeing all of these beautiful images of women in ministry and in leadership and doing things that didn't include cleaning the dishes, bearing children, and the things that men try to force upon women in all seasons of their lives and in so many points in history. But the challenge still remains that every time that I would say, hey, what about Priscilla and the work that Paul celebrates? Paul outlines Priscilla as a woman engaged in ministry. And that's not a traditional gender role. And he praises that, which contradicts what he says in 1 Corinthians and Colossians. For this religious community, he celebrated the work that Priscilla was doing. And it was challenging for me that every time I asked that question, there was already a sexist reading of that text that was operative in the space. It's as if they had gone in proof text and looked at every single woman that's listed in scripture and found a way to discredit the work that she had done. There are so many examples of women leadership in the Bible, even in Paul's writings, in Phoebe, in Romans, and then you have Lydia in Acts, who's a businesswoman who comes to be converted to be a Christian, Mary Magdalene, who has a tremendous role in Jesus' ministry, and people just want to call her a prostitute. You have Deborah, who was a judge. And then my absolute favorite woman in the Bible is Jael. She like uses her luring and gets him into her tent and he falls asleep and then she drives a tent stake through his head and kills him, which gives victory to Israel. I loved it. She's strong. She is strong. And the question is, how do we reclaim some of those images and reclaim some of those stories? Correct. We can still be critical of the violence if that's a choice you want to make. And we don't know the fullness of her story. (laughs) And we don't know how she got to that point or why she got to that point of putting a stake through the temple of his head. We don't know her history because the Bible still, even when it includes women in the story, doesn't give us the full narrative. You know, telling what they did. He deserved that stake. We can deny the violence, but the violence comes out of being long oppressed. It, it does. One of the women in the Bible that I love to highlight when we're talking about these subjects is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've often told folks, technically the first person to really, quote unquote, deliver the word in the mm-hmm. literal sense was a woman and a man didn't play a part at all. My God. If you really believe in immaculate mm-hmm. conception. And so while we will put such great emphasis on the text that the men have written, we will totally and completely ignore the actual structure and design that God created, which relied solely on a woman. And she was the one that taught him how to be human. Yeah. I mean, because she was the one who nurtured him. It, Come on, Katie, preach a word. He may have started out fully divine, but the only way that God comes to know what it means to be human is through Mary. Wow. That's a word, and I feel like that's a good place to open the doors of the church and have a quick break. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the Southern Baptists who found themselves in trouble, at least beyond their denomination, when they chose to call the second highest-ranking official in the United States government, Queen Jezebel. Jezebel Harris, isn't that her name? No, it is not her name. But we're going to talk about that and how religious bigotry also plays a role in the broader culture. And then we'll close the episode by going to the mourner's bench. All of that when we come back. Katie, I'm going to let you talk in a minute. She didn't want to talk. Uh, she didn't want to talk. Exactly. So let's just patriarchy this thing. This is how they, go patriarchy this how they do. They'd be like, mm, I don't want to say shit. And then we start talking. Y'all are patriarchal. Y'all sexist. It's because y'all got penises. He just silenced me. He just shut me down. <laughs> you all are asses. You're giving the same sermon that, they, that they're giving every Sunday right now. It's because y'all women don't know how to step up for yourself. That's why you need a man. See, Brandon can say stuff like this because he edits the episode. Well, Katie's editing this one. I edit the episode. Uh-oh. Guess what it's going it. to look like this time? Uh-oh. Leave it. Shit. Leave it in there. <laughs> Y'all are ridiculous. The Holy Shit Pod is brought to you by Irreverence. Were you offended by that last exchange or maybe something else in the first episode and a half? Yes? Well, great. No? Well, we'll keep trying. <laughs> 
just kidding, sort of. Our goal is not at all to offend. I'm just kidding, for real. But I am that friend who you never put on speakerphone because you never know what I'm going to say. And now I just do that on a podcast and we leave in 90% of the ignorance for your laughing pleasure. Anywho, in real life, the Holy Shit Pod is brought to you by Theolab Media. Theolab Media is a podcast network and media collective that believes candid dialogues rooted in vulnerability, authentic, what's that word? Authenticity and courage can transform our relationship to the divine and one another. Who writes the ad copy? You put authentic, not authenticity. Do better. Visit theolabmedia.com to learn more about Theolab and upcoming projects like Healing Jephthah's Daughters with Lisa Weaver and How to Live When You're Afraid to Die with Natalie Faria. You can also follow Theolab on social media. The handle is at Theolab Media on all channels. And if you happen to have your own podcast or media project that you'd like to develop and you're interested in a partnership, email what's up at theolabmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to connect with you and help you bring your project into fruition. Katie, why are you still scowling after all this time? You big mad. (laughs) Big mad. You know I didn't mean none of that. I was just channeling the patriarchy, you know. Where's Feminist Hulk when you need him? Patriarchy bad. Hulk smashed the patriarchy. So about a month ago, a story broke on Huffington Post that was previously posted on a few other news sites that two Southern Baptist ministers had racist and sexist commentary on Vice President Kamala Harris. Surprise, surprise. The loudest voice was Steve Wofford, who is a member of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he occupies the seat of pastor. Notice I didn't call him a pastor, but he occupies that seat at Rockwell First Baptist Church in Texas. From the pulpit, Swafford postulated about what would happen if Joe Biden had to step down from the presidency. And I quote, Jezebel has to take over. Jezebel Harris, isn't that her name? End quote. There are many reasons this is problematic, not the least of which is the fact that Jezebel is a trope that has been used to discredit black women historically to talk about them being sexually promiscuous and being uncontrollable. There are other tropes that are placed on women. A good place to read about those things is in Emily Towns' work, Womanist Ethics and the Cultural Production of Evil. But today I want to focus on the Jezebel image as that is what Scott Swafford utilized to disparage the vice president of the United States. Did y'all read the article? Because I can't say I was surprised and I can't say I was pissed because I was in some ways just waiting on it to happen. Like, Like when we knew that Kamala Harris was going to be the vice president, I knew that it was only going to be a matter of time before this sort of rhetoric made it into the public sphere. So not surprised, but it still is quite frustrating. I mean, I think what they've said is completely on brand for a denomination that actively rejects critical race theory, actively rejects women in leadership, and their statements are connecting Vice President Harris with these unnamed women and girls who were enslaved and raped by plantation owners. And girls and women were then held responsible for those rapes and they were called Jezebels and be, who were being promiscuous and unwilling to submit to the patriarchal culture, which of course denies the fact that they actually had no power at all to resist in those situations. Yeah, I'm actually glad that you make that point, Katie, because this the oppression is double-layered, right? It's, it's, it's gender... And it's race. He called her Jezebel, I would say, because it's cloaked in religious language. He's a pastor from the pulpit. He can he can speak from this authority as a pastor to say this is mm-hmm. the lens through which he's seeing and understanding her actions, etc. Uh, but he probably wanted to call her a monkey or an ape or a gorilla or something. I mean, yeah. and it's sad that that's still the reality in this country. And as you talk about what you just said, Katie, I'm, I'm really thinking about my own family history where my sixth 
or seventh great-grandfather is buried at a cemetery in Liberty, Mississippi at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is a Southern Baptist church, um, who was very active in the life of the church in the mid-1800s, who was also a white plantation owner who owned 64 slaves and Mm -hmm. fathered my fifth great-grandfather by one of those slaves who we will never know who she was because our patriarchal system created and affirmed this type of activity and action. And so, like you said, Brendan, it's not surprising for me that this is coming from a Southern Baptist pastor. This has been part of the course for the last 200, 400, 6,000 years. So, I mean, it's, it's still infuriating. It still angers me. It's amazing that the dehumanization of Black women by white men can happen all while they are fetishizing them this guy probably wishes his wife was more like Kamala. <laughs> yes. And Katie, what you said reminds me of what a scholar, Tamara Lomax, who's the foundational associate professor of African-American and African studies at Michigan State University, said in response to this. What she highlights is Jezebel literally means where is the prince? Or in modern terms, where is your husband? Tamara Lomax, she wrote a book called Jezebel Unhinged, Loosing the Black Female Body. But in that book, she highlights part of what you were saying in the last segment. Like, what does it mean to unhinge, untether women from these images that have been used to harm them historically? And I think that's the work that's actually necessary in this season. As Mm. we see, like in the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the largest denominations in the United States, this sort of ideology, this sort of perspective is running rampant and it's unhealthy. And it's beyond the Southern Baptist Convention. They just are bold enough to say it. I mean, that's what, you know, I'm thinking we start talking about, you know, just under 50% of the people are voting for this kind of racist, sexist, whatever. But the reality is what y'all are talking about are churches where they're going to deny Trump, but they're going to still have this kind of patriarchal perspective as well. So we've got tons of people out there who are affirming this kind of patriarchal and racist views. And people in the Southern Baptist Convention are calling Swalford and Buck to retract their statements, what they are absolutely not doing. But they're not telling them to get out of leadership. I mean, it's just another place that folks are willing to sell out their faith, their convictions, their morals for the sake of power. But did they ever have that faith? Did they ever have those convictions? Are they really selling it out? In some ways, I believe some of these folks, that was never their faith. They never had those convictions. If their faith was a white supremacist, slaveholder, patriarchal religion, then that's the faith that they've had the whole time, which is not necessarily the faith of, yeah, yeah. Well, which I would like to say is not necessarily the faith of the Bible, although we've proven today from Paul that it might be. And. What we can't forget is that slaveholder religion was also patriarchal religion because in slaveholder religion, black people were supposed to be slaves and white women were supposed to be in the house, protected, pristine, clean, pure, Right. Mm. That's why it was such a big offense for a black man to have sex with a white woman because that messed up their purity. And so at stake in patriarchy is Mm -hmm. actually the protection of white women but not the empowerment of white women. And the challenge that exists for me is so many white women love what they get from patriarchy. And black people too. We get indoctrinated with this mindset and we get baptized into patriarchal culture. And we like the system inside of which we exist. We don't want to think about anything different. Nature doesn't like a void. And if you're not giving me something that I can grab onto, then I'm going to keep buying into this patriarchy. I think it's ironic that Black History and Women's History Months come one after the other because so many times the ways that we celebrate women's history focuses on white women and the fact that historically, and even today, to this very day, if given the opportunity to align themselves with whiteness, with white maleness, white patriarchy, white women will do that. Look how many of them voted for Trump. And that's not to use them as a scapegoat, but it's to ask the critical question. When you hear slaveholder religion, what images come to mind? Who comes to mind in that? Do you think that that's just about black people? It's primarily about black people, but it's also about what that called you to do. And that that white women have taken the role of claiming the power that men have. And they're just incensed when they don't have it or when that's challenged. And feminism is what white women needed to have in order to continue the power that they should have as white folks. 
there are so many ways that feminism has alienated groups of folks, anyone who's not white, and that has perpetuated patriarchy because many white women will turn their backs on other white women because they're like, I made it up here and I'm going to shut the door so no one else can get here. We are a mess. So are you saying that white women won't really ever be free until they dispense with their whiteness? Sounds good to me. There was this commercial that was on a long time ago and it was, I think, pegged as like a feminist commercial, but it had a young girl and a young boy, both of them white, and the song was playing in the background. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Right? And and so the boy (laughs) and the girl were going back and forth. And it was the girl saying, I can do anything that you can do. That's first wave feminism through and through. Mm -hmm. And the reality Mm -hmm. is, I think that still is a very um, loud voice. A loud feminist voice is that first wave feminist voice, which to me says, we can do anything better than you, including be patriarchs. Like, so what does it mean for, in the same way that Clarence Thomas has taken up white supremacy and anti-blackness to govern the country, for Amy Coney Barrett to take up patriarchy and to do harm to women as another woman? Even women can be patriarchs. And so the question is, maybe even in this Lenten season, is to what extent have you invested in patriarchy? To what extent have you invested in slaveholder religion? Because you see what the white men do to the Negroes and you don't want that to happen to you. So you're going to align yourself with straight white maleness for your own protection at the expense of people of color. Your liberation is found in turning to black people, but that's a whole nother episode for another day and how we build solidarity between black people and white women. I don't need white women in order to be like, free. And I actually think that black people's freedom and liberation will only come without white people's involvement because white folks will always recenter themselves and try to take over the liberation. But that's, again, another episode for another day. So I want to wrap this section and then head to the mourner's bench. But before we go next week, I'm going to welcome our first guest to the Holy Shit Pod, the Reverend Yolanda Norton, who is the founder and curator of the Beyonce Mass. Yolanda is a womanist Hebrew Bible scholar who places Black women at the center of all that she does. And she's really working to build an international movement through the Beyonce Mass that thinks about Black women globally. We're excited to welcome Yolanda next week and to have that conversation Before we wrap this and head to the bench, I do want to ask each of you and myself a couple of additional questions, and you can answer these as one or separate questions. What changed your mind about women in leadership, women in society, and how you engage women generally? And what misogynist voices and perspectives do you still wrestle with to this very day? Again, I've always seen women in leadership in the church, so I have been grateful for that. I think the thing that shifted for me in my life is needing to advocate for the structures that have denied women the continued movement in leadership roles within the denomination. And even now we have strong leadership pictures within the denomination, but not really strong power in the denomination. So I think that that's the part that shifted for me. The misogynist voice inside of me, you know, if I could bring my 14-year-old in here right now, she would tell all the ways that I still have misogyny deeply rooted in me. You were talking earlier about what people wear, Brandon, and what they wear to church. I mean, this is one of those things as a parent that is so difficult. I realize that what someone wears is not them asking to be catcalled or harassed or raped. But as a mom, I'm protective of my daughter. Every time I say, you can't wear that, she says, I can wear whatever I want to. Men are responsible for themselves. She is exactly right. And I wrestle with a world that doesn't agree with her. And so I think for me, my biggest challenge every day is to be wrestling with my daughter and reminding me that I'm like third wave feminism and she's probably down at fifth wave. I don't know y'all had all them waves. <laughs> I think we only have four, but... Jordan is fifth wave feminism. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She is. But what changed for me was when I began to really explore and interrogate this question of God's sovereignty. This idea that God does whatever God chooses. Because a lot of what I believed about women being in leadership, women being in positions of authority was based on what men had interpreted from scripture as saying how God would operate, who God would use. And when I began to interrogate this notion of God's sovereignty, I came to the conclusion that God does whatever God wants, that who are we to say God won't use women? 
As a matter of fact, who are we to say that God's desired choice is to use men? Uh, from my experience, I would much rather have women in positions of leadership and positions of authority based on what we have witnessed men do with that power. And so for me, it started there. I really began to examine just kind of our history, our country's history, um, my own history of where we located women in, in the narrative, in not just the biblical narrative or the text, but in life's narrative and how we pushed, continuously pushed women to the margins. And then I began to examine this thing about who God is and how sovereign God is and how we were applying these characteristics to God. We were saying God won't use women. We were saying God doesn't want women in positions of leadership and authority. There was nothing about God's design or structure for our world based on what I have seen with my own eyes and what I've examined from scripture that says women are inferior or women are not good leaders. And that's what began to change how I view women in leadership mm. and positions of authority. Now, the things that I still struggle with, and I think the thing that I struggle with the most is when... Jamie, my wife, I'll start by saying Jamie, my wife, not my wife, Jamie. Your wife, Jamie. Uh, you the better challenge call her is, mm -hmm. um, as you talk about kind of the context that even some women come from that are very patriarchal, I think that's true about her South African context. And I don't ever want her to feel like I'm forcing her to do anything even if a part of me is hoping that she awakens to the reality that the patriarchal existence does not have to be the one that she subscribes to. But at the same time, I don't want to use patriarchy, you know, to force her into that reality. And, you know, there's a is there a fine line between misogyny and empowerment or some of these other things? And and so that's those are the areas that I really wrestle right now. I think it's, it's funny because you all joke with me because I, I would always say my wife, my wife, my wife. And then at home, if I was talking to somebody on the phone and I said, yeah, Jamie is in it, she'll be like, who is Jamie? She'll be like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, wife. Yeah. I'm this. I'm like, okay, you can be wife. I don't have no problem. And then when I get around y'all, y'all be like, oh my gosh, your wife doesn't have a name. You're horrible. As much as your wife is Indian and South African, she's also Correct. real black. Because that's, I feel like that's a black thing. Because even like, if I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, oh yeah, Adriel, like... <laughs> <laughs> who is Adriel? Like, does, right, does, that, does right. that person know who I am? Does that person Correct. know that I'm your husband? Does that person know that we are together in a partnership? Like, so I think that's also maybe a cultural thing. And your uh, wife might be I a little think black so. too. I think, I think she is a little black. She's been in South Africa for a while. I mean, all her life. Uh, <laughs> so I think for me, what changed my perspective on women in ministry, leadership, women in the world is my mother. My mother is one of the most passionate people that I know as it relates to ministry, to teaching. My mother taught Sunday school for years. My mother always is called to teach vacation Bible school. She's always taught to teach in the teen conferences at the church. And people love my mother. She's always felt a special call to working with young people teenagers. Typically, she teaches like the high school students as they're transitioning to that next phase of life. And she's super gifted at it. Everybody yes. loves Vicky. Yes, we do. It wasn't until like the last 10 to 15 years wherein my mom started teaching adult classes and there became this sort of demand for my mother to teach in the adult vacation Bible school class or the adult Sunday school class. And she's also done that really well. She's playful. She's imaginative. She's hilarious. I mean, she's done the equivalent of preaching, but not named it as such for herself. But she's gifted in ministry, more gifted than half of the men who claim that they're called to preach. And so I don't know if my mother would ever say that she feels called to preach, but I do think that she is called to ministry. And the fact that there has been a world and a church, particularly her, her church, that hasn't made space for the fullness of her gift, when they've made space for all kind of jackleg men to be up in the pulpit preaching and teaching, is atrocious. Having a mother who's so passionate about God and ministry has been essential to my formation and essential to my understanding that women are gifted for ministry full stop. The other thing that also changed my mind, and this is actually funny <laughs> to me, it's the fact that I tried so mm. hard to love women, intimately, romantically. <laughs> like, in my quest to try to live into the heterosexual lie because I thought that was my only option, 
there were at least two or three women who I really tried to develop an intimate romantic relationship with. I think people might call me successful um, by some estimations in terms of the functionality of a heterosexual partnership but there was still a way in which I was unable to love them. Every woman that I've ever loved, I'd love to the best of my ability. But because there wasn't actually just the core romantic attraction, it was really difficult to give them all that they deserved and desired. And so for me, I had to figure out, well, what does it mean that I actually do feel love for these women in my heart and in my life? Because I no longer feel like that's a sexual conquest to prove something not to them, but to myself, which is a function of patriarchy. That frees me from relating to women as sexual objects to be dominated. And I don't do that perfectly. But what I know, and I often say there's an old black church song that says, if it had not been for the Lord on my side, tell me where would I be? But I like to say, if it had not been for black women on my side, if it had not been for black scholars, if it had not been for black church mothers, if it had not been for black women who were silenced by their pastors on my side, I really don't know where I would be. And so the least I can do in every single meeting, in every single conversation, on every single podcast recording, wherever I am, is to try to give them the same things that they've given to me. And that's not because they need me, right? But that's from a place of Mm -hmm. gratitude and a place of honor and a place of reverence. If I can honor, reverence, respect, trust, empower, embolden Black women, like 10% of the ways in which they've done those same things to me, it's not enough. But I think it's more than what a lot of black men are doing. And I think that that's a challenge that I would have for black men everywhere, for people everywhere. How are you honoring, celebrating, lifting up black women in your daily life? How are you developing intimate relationships with black women in your daily life? Not in a performative way. So you get some kind of street cred and some kind of, oh, look at me. I'm so feminist or I'm so solid with black women. I'm so, no, that's not what it's about. How are you doing it when the body is looking? How are you doing it around your dinner table? How are you doing it in your secret Zoom meetings? So um, that's what changed for me. And again, I'm not perfect. I still wrestle with misogyny on a daily basis. I wish I could think of an example in this exact moment, but because of the messages I received as a child and the things that we still see on TV, there are things that still slip out of my mouth sometimes. I know that I use the, like, the, like the words heifer and bitch real freely, and I, that's not a gender term for me. That's part of me <laughs> as a human. But I call anybody and everybody bitch. And, and I think for me... It's playful. And I'm not calling them that in a derogatory way. Like if somebody says something real shady, I'd be like, ooh, bitch. (laughs) I have definitely heard you use that in a derogatory tone. To you. (laughs) (laughs) So all that to say, um, the ways that I still try to make sure that I'm not internalizing misogyny is by being critical of the things that I stream on streaming platforms, being critical of what I consume. And just making sure that I'm not taking those messages in in an uncritical way, but that I'm speaking back to them so that it's not made manifest in my life. Let's take another quick break and then head to the bench. I remember when. I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so crazy about that day. Even your emotions have an echo in so much space. Mm-hmm. And when you're out there, out there, out there without a care. I don't know how that goes. Does that make me crazy? I think you're crazy. Does that, does that make me crazy? See, my voice, I, I can't sing on the episodes when you make me record this early. Does that, does that make me crazy? So we should do every episode in the morning. Possibly. And I hope that you are having the time of your life. I, I can make any song worship. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Wait a minute, I like this part. Because like it feels like worship <laughs> when I sing it. And I hope that you are having the time of your life. But you better think twice. Yeah. That's my twice. only advice. I wish Worship I could do those runs, man. Twice. <laughs> I can't do it. You know, that's not your ministry. You got to do your ministry. Okay, back to the bench. All right, good people. The time has come and the hour is nigh. We are once again at the end of an episode of the Holy Shit Pod. And every single week, what we got to do is head to the mourner's bench. And if you don't know what the mourner's bench is, Google it. But it's the place that you go to be saved, honey. And some of y'all have been living your lives in solidarity, in service to, 
Some of you have been living your lives in service to white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Shout out bell hooks. And you need to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And you need to sit on this here bench. Y'all, Sam, Katie, who's on the bench? I want to put the, the church that I grew up in, both, both of those on the bench. Even now, my mom is a, is a minister. And my home, home church, the one that I grew up in as a little bitty child, my uncle-in-law is the pastor. His sister is a minister. But when I go to that church, there are only men in the pulpit. And even if my mom or his sister are there and he invites them to pray or to speak or to do something, they have to get up from their seat in the pew in the congregation and come up front and speak and then go and sit back down. It's actually a church where there are people sitting in the pulpit, but they're all men. It's the same from the church I left that church for. When I was about 12, I remember the first time a woman was supposed to speak and it wasn't it wasn't planned, right? This this man who's a pastor was supposed to be preaching. He said, I'm gonna have my wife speak today. And like there was this rush to go find a podium to bring and put down on the floor so she could speak from because she wasn't coming in that pulpit. That is trash. Uh, and still to this day, when I go home, this day, I have never seen in the 20 years that I've been a part of the church, I've never seen a woman sitting in that pulpit. Doesn't mean that there hasn't been. I've been away from home for, for a long time. But I have never seen a woman sitting in the pulpit, which means there's a lot of those beliefs that are still ingrained in the, the minds of the people who are part of those congregations, who are part of those communities back home. And I need to put both of those churches on the bench today. They got to go on the bench. Yeah. Got to go. It's, it amazes me how similar our churches are, even though I was in the big city and you were in small town Alabama, like... It's the exact same church. I, to this very day, have never seen a woman sit in the pulpit. And my uncle in his patriarchy, who is also the pastor in that congregation. And for those of you who are listening who go to that church or who are part of my family, I'm not attempting to speak ill about anybody. I'm just naming what's happening. This is factual. I'm not throwing shade. I'm just describing what happens. I have a different political perspective. I have a different theological perspective. And in the same way that I, no, I don't respect y'all's perspective, but I allow you to continue to do that. And I just remove myself from that space. If what I'm saying and describing is offensive to you and you want to hold on to the patriarchy, you are invited to stop listening. No tea, no shade. I remember distinctly, like whenever a woman was to speak in the congregation, my uncle would stand at the pulpit when he was inviting her to speak. And he wouldn't move from it. And he would gesture to the podium that was on the floor. Just to be crystal clear. This is your place. From, that's where you're supposed this to be. This is where you speak. I mean, and, and if there was any sort of hesitation mm. in the woman or that she, she worked to her, and he would not sit down in his seat until the woman started speaking from the space on the podium. Wow. Like the posture of that is so stupid and so ridiculous. And for me, I think what I, who and what I want to place on the bench are people who, within the pandemic, have not view, viewed this as an opportunity. People in the church, I'm thinking about churches. You've already placed my church on the bench and it belongs there, my childhood church, that is. But I also want to place on the bench any church, whether that be my childhood church, your childhood church, or other churches who've taken this pandemic as an opportunity to double down on their patriarchy and to double down on their bigotry. Like, if the pandemic has taught me one thing is that church, it really ain't been shit for quite some time. And we've needed to do work to transform the church and make it meaningful and make it life-giving for everybody who walks through the doors. We've needed to do that work for a long time. And the pandemic has showed just how bankrupt the institution is. It showed just how selfish the institution is. And I'm not trying to be just solely critical of the church because I think there still is a way in which logging into a live stream and seeing this physical space and hearing people singing songs of Zion and songs of joy can be life-giving and help someone make it just another week through this pandemic. So there is, those things are happening and how have we faithfully responded to the times? And if your response to the pandemic has been to say, we just need to get back to where we were before the pandemic, we just need to get back to these values, these principles, if we just did these things, how God has ordained them. If you've chosen God. to blame the pandemic on uh, women in ministry or gay people uh, claiming the fullness of who they are, if you've chosen to blame the pandemic on those things, it's a scapegoat. It's not true. It's not factual. And the place you need to be looking is inside. For the yep. ways that you still choose to oppress women and people who aren't straight, black, male, straight, white, male, or whatever your standard of being a human is. You're on the bench and you're on the bench in love. 
And I pray that as you're sitting on the bench, this hard bench, that the Holy Spirit will soften your heart and make you a better human. You know, I'm concerned that my Presbyterian siblings are going to be patting themselves on the back right now after listening to the two of you talk about your churches growing up mm-hmm. and the patriarchy that exists there. Because y'all like to blame the other folks and talk about how woke y'all are. True, true. That's why I think it's only appropriate that we put the Presbyterian Church USA on the bench for the systems and structures of patriarchy that are abundantly present nowadays. Yep. I mean, women have a difficult time finding their second call, and it's rare that women over 40 are going to be able to find a second call anywhere, and certainly not somewhere where they would be ahead of staff or compensated appropriately. That's good, Ricks. There is anecdotal evidence for sure of women who are in head of staff positions in this denomination, but those are few and far between, and many of those women are paid far less than their male counterparts. You talking good, Katie. We also have a ton of 60 and 70 year old men who won't retire and therefore not opening up positions for younger folks and women. Well, going on a read then. So from the local congregation to the Presbyterian educational institutions to the national office, we certainly do have women in leadership roles, but very often they are paid less than men. They're controlled by their boards and sessions more, and they are constantly challenged in their work. When women are compensated the same amount and have access to the same positions as men in the church and in the world, and when we acknowledge and insist that black women and Latina women and native women and Asian women also need the same access to compensation and leadership positions, then, maybe then, the Presbyterians might be able to think about coming off this hard bench. Until then, they're going to need to sit on down next to all these Baptists and the Pentecostals from last week. Uh-oh. Because they're going to be here a long while. Uh-oh. Sam getting crunk. Sam, do you got something else? I've been a part of three churches my entire life, and my childhood churches are very blatant in the way that they treat women. But for the last 10 years, I've been a part of a church in Atlanta whose pastor is like very active politically in the city and really is like this voice for freedom and justice. And he's always at rallies and he's got bullhorns and he's championing. But when you take a step back and look at the structure of the church, you know, we have deacons and we have deaconess. We don't have one female deacon. And the deaconess position has no authority, no power in the church. They're not meeting to make decisions about executive leadership about any if if the if the church is in search for a pastor, the deacons are responsible for for doing a search to fill that position. And in the 10 years that I've been there, we have not ordained one woman. We have women who have been called to preach and we've licensed them, but we have not ordained them. It's interesting that while they are not forcing women to sit in the congregation, while they are allowing women to to speak from the pulpit, there is still a level of misogyny, patriarchy um, that exists within the structure that is present within the church. And I think it's it's so ironic that we can be so much about the freedom and the justice and all of this stuff and still have blatant structures that place women in a separate category than the men who are in leadership in the church. Mm, That's good, Sam. So we've reached the end of another episode. And as will become the standard, I want to close with an invitation. And this week's invitation is simple, but it's also accompanied by a few questions. The first question is, is your religious practice faithful or is it fictional? I think many of us are practicing fiction, not faith. And I really don't have time to unpack all of that right now. But I do want all of you to wrestle with whether or not you are practicing faith or fiction. Now, the invitation is, I invite each and every one of you, everybody under the sound of my voice, as we say in black churches, I invite you to be truthful. Sam, as you were talking about how the pastor of your last church would preach with social justice rhetoric, but still maintain structures that oppressed women and prevented them from having agency in the church, I couldn't help but feel like that pastor is a liar. If you read the Bible or any other sacred text and you read it in a manner that suggests God desires to do justice in the world, but that justice only applies to you or people like you or people with penises, then you're a liar. 
If you claim divine freedom for yourself based on your race, your gender, your sexuality, your genitalia, your socioeconomic status, how progressive you are or how woke you are, or any other identity marker and that freedom has limitations, then you're a liar. You aren't duty-bound to a deity and you aren't satisfying any savior. You are worshiping yourself and today's invitation is just to be truthful. Let's be honest. You have made of yourself an idol while claiming to be reverencing God, while claiming to follow scripture. And all you're doing is making an idol of yourself and hiding behind God while hoping no one notices. But we see you. And today, the invitation is to just be truthful. Stop lying to your church. Stop lying to your family. Stop lying to yourself. As I said earlier, if you call yourself a religious leader, a pastor, or a person of faith, and patriarchy is at the center of what you do, then your God is actually penis. And we just want you to be honest about that. Stop lying about how much you read scripture. Stop lying and saying that you didn't write it, you read it. No, baby, you're doing a whole lot of interpretation. Stop lying and declaring that God desires the subjugation of women in your congregation. Stop lying and claiming that you follow Jesus because the fact of the matter is it's about you and it always has been. And we see you, boo. I didn't come to preach, but I have a second invitation, you see, because in the Baptist church, you got to close at least three times before you actually take your seat. So the second invitation is this. If you belong to a church that still claims women are second class citizens, whether that be explicit or implicit, I invite you to leave. Walk out the door. Stop tithing there. Stop singing in the choir. Stop streaming them on Facebook and YouTube on Sunday mornings. Leave for your own health and well-being. Stop internalizing that hatred. I don't care how long you've been there. I don't care if it's your family church. Talk with your feet and leave. You have been abused in that system for far too long. And if you have never heard it called abuse, I am telling you right now that it's abuse. And this is just like that movie, Get Out. It's an intervention, baby. This is your wake up call. I am flashing my cell phone light in your face. (laughs) I'm flashing my light in your eyes right now. And I'm saying, get out, leave. It's time to go. You have been here for far too long. And the last invitation, three points and a close. The last invitation is for those of you in these patriarchal religious communities who cannot possibly imagine leaving. Those of you who feel called to do work in those spaces, I want to honor that call and I want to honor your perspective. But I still got an invitation for you and that's to be truthful. First of all, be truthful with yourself and figure out why it is you are remaining there. Why are you staying in a community that is going to be oppressive to you? You got to ask yourself that question. And after you've been truthful with yourself, I invite you to be truthful with your pastor. Be like Nathan. That's the invitation. Be just like Nathan. In the Hebrew Bible, Nathan goes and tells King David a story that enrages him. And when Nathan gets to the end, David is so mad that he demands to know who Nathan is talking about. And Nathan says, it's you, bro. It's always been you. And maybe that's what you need to tell that pastor. It's you. It's always been you. When I chose to leave my childhood congregation for good, a friend said to me, but Brandon, if everybody leaves, who plays the role of Nathan? That ain't everybody's call. And sometimes we convince ourselves that it is, but it still is a function of how deeply ingrained patriarchy is in our psyches. But for those of you whose call it is, spend every waking moment in those religious communities being just like Nathan and telling those people, it's you. And I would still encourage you to stop giving your money to those communities until those churches and communities of faith change. Stop funding their oppression. All right, that's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Before you stop listening, go ahead and open your phone and hit that subscribe button on the Holy Shit Pod feed. And if you are listening in Apple Podcasts or another app that allows for ratings and reviews, go ahead and hit five stars and write us a little note. Let us know how you're liking it in the little review section. And if there are things you'd like us to discuss on the Holy Shit Pod, send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com. We always like hearing from listeners. All right, good people. We'll be back next Monday with a conversation on woman's theology, as well as my interview with the Reverend Yolanda Norton founder and curator of the Beyonce Mass. Until then, peace.